This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Among the most positive innovations necessitated by the COVID-19 pandemic was the use of telehealth to access medical expertise remotely, even out of state. Driven by fear of contracting disease at a hospital or office, patients and professionals alike learned to meet from virtually anywhere for medical consultations on a wide range of services. This power to see one's own doctor while traveling or to reach an expert whose practice is out of state revealed to patients a promise for better, more convenient care. Now, as the threat of severe COVID abates, policy experts and elected officials will need to examine telehealth's interstate performance and then work to instantiate its most useful benefits into law. Which states have led the nation in empowering patients to reach providers beyond their borders? What were the problems, if any, where providers could offer services with little or no in-state registration? And what can states like Massachusetts that ended permission for interstate telehealth learn from these states that did not? My guest today is Josh Archambault, Senior Fellow at Pioneer Institute and Senior Fellow at Cicero Institute, for which his recent paper entitled Few Disciplinary Issues with Out-of-State Telehealth looked at the effects of Florida's and Idaho's decision to liberalize the use of interstate telehealth during and after the pandemic. His research examined how allowing access to out-of-state providers with little or no in-state registration affected the quantity and quality of the healthcare provided. Mr. Archambault will share his views on the nature of the demand for interstate telehealth and the benefits of liberalizing the restrictions on out-of-state providers and offer his recommendations to lawmakers in other states for helping patients find quality, convenient care, regardless of their or their provider's location. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's Senior Fellow in Healthcare, Josh Archambault. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by my Pioneer Institute colleague and Senior Fellow at the Cicero Institute, Josh Archambault. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Josh. Thanks, Joe, for having me. All right. Um, now, uh, you've been on the show before and we've talked about uh, the um, COVID and the pandemic, uh, but we're rapidly approaching the end of the public health emergency. I think the official end date is May 11th, uh, which signals the end of all COVID-related temporary government measures. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are delighted to have the p- pandemic in the rearview mirror, um, but it's uh, the emergency has forced us all to develop new ways of communicating. This, this uh, podcast is an example of that. So let's, uh, we're going to talk today about the adoption of telemedicine. It's been, as you and I have discussed in the past, a pretty good thing uh, for those who didn't want to go to the hospital and perhaps expose themselves to a a contagious disease. But I I want to take us through where we are now, three years down the path. Uh, You've done some interesting research on the uptake of telehealth and the uptake of telehealth uh, between states. So let's start at the beginning. What is telehealth for our listeners who haven't heard our earlier podcast? Uh, and where within medicine have we seen its most enthusiastic adoption? Yeah, so telehealth is a broad term. I mean, most people think of uh, what we are doing right now, which is talking over a computer or on a phone uh, to do telehealth. But telehealth is actually a a broad term. Uh, It differs, the definition actually slightly differs by state, but it can be anything from text messaging to video chatting, Skype, Zoom type uh, calls, to sending images, you might get a scan of uh, your knee or your ankle and that's sent over. Um, the adoption's been pretty widespread during COVID, uh, somewhat out of necessity. I do think that there's been a massive expansion in the mental health 
and behavioral health space uh, for two reasons. One, there was a lot of technology companies that saw an opportunity to move into the space to, to treat patients when they couldn't come into uh, facilities. But also uh, for mental health and behavioral health, where there's such a shortage of providers in certain parts of the country, this is really the only option for patients. And so there's been um, a massive interest, both from the patient side and from the provider side, to try to leverage this tool for that sort of um, delivery of care. And we've, start, we've started to see a downward plateau of sorts as people have returned back to how they use um, the healthcare system in general. But telehealth is seems to be here and sticking around, and there's definitely pockets of populations, and it's not just by age. There are older populations as well uh, that continue to use telehealth at a, at a far elevated rate uh, versus pre-COVID. So it's been sticky. You anticipated my next question, which is to say when we're no longer perhaps as afraid or no longer afraid at all of, of contracting COVID when we show up at a hospital, uh, one would expect the, the the use of telehealth to fall off dramatically. Has, has Have we seen that or has it been somewhat sticky? Uh, there's been a dip, but there's definitely a stickiness to it. And I think there's for a couple of reasons. I mean, we've talked about some of these and your listeners have probably ex experienced some of this too. If you live in an urban area and you want to just avoid the traffic and you don't need to actually have a provider's hands laid on your body, you're doing a follow-up appointment, you're getting a second opinion, you're hearing about test results, it is far, far easier to hop on a telehealth visit uh, to avoid the traffic, avoid the pollution, avoid sitting in a germy waiting room, um, just to be able to get that information out relatively quickly. So there has definitely been a stickiness and I, I think we're gonna continue to see that. What, what's very, very interesting about this is, is a great research opportunity to continue to get at the question that you just asked. What kind of care is best uh, delivered over telehealth? What kind of specialties typically use it? Do we see it for more for primary care, for mental health? Do we see it for certain kinds of specialists in which they're fully leveraging it as part of their pre-operations check-in, whereas before they used to make you come in? each time. That's what I'm really, really interested to watch over the next five to 10 years to see how technology, now that all of us have it in our pocket or in our homes, how often we're going to see this as our preferred way to interact with the healthcare system. Well, we know that uh, necessity is the mother of invention, and it seems to be the case that telehealth somehow magically arrived at a precisely the moment we needed it. Um, so that there's been a huge uptake. Um, is it the case that it's we use it now because we have it or um, you know, why is it that you think that, uh, you know, beyond COVID that this technology exploded? I guess I'm asking if if the pandemic hadn't arrived, would telehealth still be sort of a niche uh, fringe concept or, or had its time arrived already? Yeah, I think it largely its time had arrived and COVID certainly gave it a leg up. Um, the technology was there. Companies were already in the space. We wouldn't have had we wouldn't have as many companies as we do in the space, which has certainly helped. The other thing that's changed is there were a lot of providers that were resistant to using it before COVID. And I think that necessity did get many of them much more comfortable with it, see the convenience of it for certain kinds of care. So my, my view on this is pre-COVID, uh, telehealth's time would come, but it probably would have been a decade from now instead of where we are today. Certainly, there was some inertia from perhaps uh, older providers who, who weren't as familiar with the technology, uh, and they had to, they had to figure it out. Um, so let's uh, let's uh, uh, jump now to a paper you just released that I found very interesting. Uh, uh, this is some of the work you're doing at Cicero Institute, uh, and you looked at the patterns of telehealth um, in two states, but not just telehealth, but uh, interstate telehealth, right? Uh, people who are using uh, providers in another state, uh, specifically, you were looking at people, users who were in Idaho and Florida and using uh, providers in uh, presumably the other 48 states. Um, 
Why did you choose those two states, Idaho and Florida? Very, very different. Yeah, so that's part of the reason we chose them. Uh, separate sides of the country, very different in size and in scope. Um, the other things that we want, we're looking for is Florida actually passed a law pre-COVID in 2019 that allowed for this a registration for out-of-state providers. And what was different there is a couple things. One is um, it was pre-COVID, so they had a little bit of a jump start. So we wanted to see, could we see any movement pre-COVID on who was registering or not. They also allow it for all providers, which is not the case in many states. Um, if a state allows for a cross-state line telehealth, usually it's only for MDs or for doctors. And so we were very interested to see, are there other provider types that register? So that's where we started. We found some folks within their state government who are really interested to study it along with us. And Idaho, by contrast, did it in a slightly different way. They did it by executive order, like many states did by the governor's um, you know, pen, to say that during COVID, we're going to allow for this flexibility. Now, they didn't have a registration requirement, so we don't have as much insight into what kinds of providers are providing those services. But we wanted to see, do we see a difference in the complaint rates? So just for context, th this is a massive debate in many states, Joe, going forward right now in state legislatures on whether they should continue or allow for this across state line. And this is where there's the fiercest opposition, this across state line telehealth. There's a number of other telehealth policy changes that are being debated, but this is really the big one because it does allow for patient in Boston to be able to access a provider anywhere else in the country. And that really opens up the possibility for competition, accountability, to access the best providers that maybe aren't in your community, um, both rural and urban settings where there is a shortage of certain kinds of specialists. So this is really a, a big deal in the telehealth policy world. And as you can imagine, there are many groups who are fighting it, um, fighting it very hard and have successfully fought it for years. And so we wanted to understand what is the main argument against this reform. And it's this concern that there's going to be when you have a cross-state telehealth, a massive spike in the complaints. And because the argument is that there's going to be a huge dip in the quality of care from out-of-state providers. And so we said, well, let's look at that. In these two states that have done this slightly differently, did they see a big spike in complaints uh, from a cross-state line telehealth? And then were they substantiated? Was there discipline on the other end of that? And jump ahead to the conclusion. We didn't find that. Uh, oh, don't don't spoil our conclusion. Oh, sorry, I wanna, I wanna... No, no. And then we can pull that apart a little bit. But really, what we found was, um, quite frankly, a little surprising to us uh, how how low uh, some of the compl complaint levels were from patients. And this is just one snapshot. We grant that, but it is something that's definitely worth researching because this policy debate is raging right now. Indeed, I'm sure it is. And you and I have talked about why uh, a particular group may want to protect their business in a particular state. Uh, but let's uh, do a little straw manning and say, well, okay, if, if we're going to try to come up with some valid concerns, we are very proud of our medical system here in Massachusetts. We think we have the best doctors and hospitals in the country. Uh, and the 40, uh, 49 other states, you know, there's, there's nowhere but down from, from our, our uh, lofty heights. Is there a big difference amongst our 50 states, given so, you know, we certainly have different laws in all states. We need different laws in every state. We're, you know, we're, we're Republican in our sort of uh, form of government. Um, you know, are there some Wild West uh, states that just essentially allow anyone to uh, hang a shingle and, and uh, aren't properly vetted? No, <laughs> his short answer is in medicine. I mean, there's there's a little bit of variation, but when it comes to doctors and other kinds of very common provider types, I mean, these individuals are going to the same medical schools, graduating together and going back home or staying or some moving. 
They're largely taking the same kinds of licensing tests. They all, many of them have to be licensed in their states. They have to be in good standing to even participate in these sorts of across state line thing. There's mild variation. The variation typically um, is in something called the scope of practice. What are they allowed to do for actually seeing their patients? But the actual credentialing and the licensing, and there's very minimal differences. And so the, the quality concerns, I mean, are not there. Now, there's another approach to get at another policy approach to get at what we are um, studying here, which is compacts. And there are a number of states that have passed compacts, and compacts in the medical world traditionally allow for uh, somebody to more easily practice in two different states. But there's some severe limitations to that. One, the compacts only apply to one kind of provider. So you may pass a compact for medical doctors, but no other provider can use that additional flexibility. They tend to be pretty expensive to go through the process. You got to pay a licensing fee in every single state uh, that you apply to. Um, it can take months uh, for you to be able to actually get permission to practice in those other states. So you hear a lot of people in the medical uh, in service industry saying, okay, it's better than nothing, but it's not great. It's not allowing for the flexibility uh, that we would need. And the analogy that Joe, you and I have talked about in for pilots, we don't assume that they cross the state line and all of a sudden, they're not able, qualified uh, to be able to take off, or they need a different license to take off from a different state. We, we assume those skills are transferable, and that's really what is important here going forward. And so I, I think some of those quality arguments, well, certainly you want mechanisms to be able to catch them when you see bad Apple providers providing care. There does not appear to be a big difference in the kind of care um, we don't see, we haven't seen research where somebody moves and all of a sudden they become a bad and a problem doctor. They were either a problem doctor in state one and in state two, or they weren't a problem doctor and they remain not a problem doctor going forward. So I want to drill down more on the safety concerns. Again, I'm thinking about uh, those listening to our podcast saying, oh, you guys haven't thought of this. If I'm uh, getting a provider from another state, and you mentioned Florida actually makes the uh, the doctors register. Uh, Idaho doesn't. So uh, they register, but if presumably they're credentialed and, and certified in their re respective state. They're just essentially putting their name on the list. Here I am. I'm practicing in your state. So at least we know they're there. In Idaho, they don't even have that. How does it say if something goes wrong? Uh, you know, how, how do you know? And I'll follow that on with, how does the individual consumer know if, again, they've not been registered in your state that, you know, how do we know to scrutinize their practice, I, I don't, you know, if they hold their diploma up to the screen, I, I need, you know, more as a consumer uh, to vet the the professional, I, you know, we're not talking about the brain surgeons necessarily, but, but perhaps lower level um, providers that may not have as elaborate credential systems. How, how do I protect myself, sure. my citizens? So, uh, yeah, let's start with the first part there. So if, if something goes wrong in any state, regardless of the state laws, you, you can file a complaint. And there's always a, a process that's followed against uh, medical providers to determine whether there's substance to that complaint. And frequently, um, the board or whoever's reviewing that complaint finds, I mean, pretty frequently, like surprisingly high, they find that there was not a complaint. Maybe it's somebody just they didn't click with their provider. They said something that they found offensive, but really it's not like it's not malpractice. Nothing was done that was it should be called into question. So that, that's the first thing. Um, they absolutely need to be credentialed or licensed in their, their home state. And, and uh, individuals actually can, they have many different avenues in which they can pursue some sort of, if there's a problem, not only can they file a complaint, but they could file a medical malpractice lawsuit against anybody 
Um, and in fact, across state line telehealth opens additional uh, avenues for patients because it's across state commerce. And so there's actually federal courts that you could access that you couldn't uh, for in-state uh, providers when there's a problem. So that, that's the first piece I would say on that. The, the second thing I would say is we were curious about the in-state uh, complaint rate and disciplinary uh, numbers versus the cross-state because we wanted to see, is there a difference? And there absolutely are complaints uh, filed for in-state telehealth visits. Florida tracks those. Uh, that's in the paper. We looked at those. Um, and there are complaints. But again, there's very few disciplinary actions taken um, for those sorts of issues. And they're the same uh, common complaints. Usually it's they feel like the provider is not uh, they want them to prescribe something and the provider is saying, no, I can't prescribe that. So they file a complaint and the board says, well, they can't actually give that. So no, they're not. there's no issue here. And that's very similar issues in state and out of state. Um, and so I think that's it's just important for people to remember there are consumer protections here, whether the registration is there or not. What the paper I think illustrated to us is we wanted to know, is the registration somehow fundamentally different? Do they catch more things? Do they see, do they discipline more doctors or other provider types as a result? And the initial findings are no. It, the registration does not seem to catch more or result in more individuals having complaints filed or having disciplinary actions taken against them. And so I think for policymakers, it just begs the question, there's many ways to move forward, whether it's compacts or registrations or allowing just a more uh, open-ended, if you're licensed and in good standing in your home state, a patient can choose to use that provider. Again, nobody's being forced to use these providers. That's really important. It's just another option. Which gets to your second question, Joe, um, which is, I think we still are very early in stages of being able to help patients have tools to evaluate um, providers and how they will click with them or their expertise. There are some quality metrics that are out there and tools that are out there. I'd say they're relatively rudimentary and there's much more room to be done there. On the flip side though, I would say, really what we need to contrast this with is what the status quo is. And the status quo is in many communities, you simply don't have access to some of these providers. So one could argue having access to a provider is better than access to no provider. And that's number one for us to keep in mind. Number two is um, telehealth allows your geography to no longer determine your medical destiny. You may live in a community and you know, maybe you live in Western Massachusetts, let's for, say for example, and you realize that either you're gonna have to drive to Boston to try to access somebody, or you might know that there's the world's best expert for this, whatever you're dealing with in New York City. And going to New York City would be a better option, but you're sick. And so you're trying to figure out, but it's maybe geographically closer for you to go to New York City. Doing a cross-state telehealth makes more sense for you because it's the world's expert who lives in New York or in Cleveland or in Houston or wherever that expert might live. And this allows you to access that provider. Anybody of any income would have the option and ability to access that provider. Right now, you have to have the resources and be in the health to get on a plane, pay for a hotel to be able to access that world-class expert. And across state line telehealth at least puts on the table the option for you to be able to access those, which I think is really fundamentally different. And I think we need to keep in mind as we're discussing this issue. Indeed, you know, you and I both uh, value the power of markets to solve solution, is, you know, create solutions for, for needs. Now that, uh, you know, I think you point out a very good point, which is uh, telehealth as a technology and COVID as a sort of a, a 
um, catalyst for that technology are relatively new. You don't have many, many years of data to compare. Given that it's now possible to find a doctor out of state, and given now that you have two states where doctors could, in the case of Florida, register, how have doctors reacted? Meaning, are doctors eager? I mean, we you've said, look, patients need uh, doctors elsewhere. Do doctors uh, want to serve patients elsewhere? Have they decided to, since being able to, have they shown up and registered, uh, for instance, in Florida? Yeah, so that, that was one of the research questions that we were interested in. And I, I should mention, I did this with Dr. Steve Mahatra at uh, Harvard Medical School. We, we pulled that apart. We looked at, okay, and because Florida is requiring registrations, what kind of providers are registering? Uh, MDs are by far the most. Um, so there's about 14,000 additional providers who have registered, and MDs make up a good percentage of those, 40, 45% or so. Um, the next subcategory, I'm going to lump together a few kinds of providers, but it's I would put into the <laughs> mental health provider space. So clinical social workers, mental health counselors, psychologists, they're, they're making up the, the next biggest bucket of providers that have moved forward. And then we see like a hodgepodge of additional people who have registered dietitians, nutritionists, speech language pathologists, um, physical therapists, those sorts of individuals. There's a handful of those thrown in. And it's going to be very interesting to see if that those trends continue over time. One of the trends we noticed was that they started pre-COVID, but every single year since they've had significant increases in the amount of providers who are registering in Florida. I think the word's just getting out um, that this is a possibility for them to be able to see patients. If you're in the Northeast and you have uh, patients that snowboard down or in the Midwest, this is a way for you to stay in touch with your patients um, instead of not seeing them for six months uh, out of the year if they run into any sort of medical issues. I think the other thing that we're interested to see here, Joe, is uh, the future in a lot of areas with those with chronic diseases is team-based care. And what that means is a handful of different providers able to meet with the patient all at the same time. Well, telehealth allows that in a way that is logistically much more challenging in other health settings. And so I'm curious to see as hopefully more states allow for this across state line for more different kinds of providers, you might have a nutritionist who lives in Texas but have your primary care doctor who lives in your hometown meeting with your endocrinologist who lives in Ohio because they have worked together on patients and they're able to be pulled together through telehealth while the patient sits at home uh, versus before that team-based care might not have been possible. That's pretty powerful. It's essentially the proverbial death of distance in medicine. It's, it's, it's really profound. Uh, have you noticed, uh, you did have quite a few maps and charts in your paper. Um, we're looking at Florida again. We know it's a, a, a warm state, a destination for many uh, uh, folks, retirees or snowbirds. Did you notice a pattern? Where are these doctors who are serving Floridians uh, registering from? Which states you know, are, are sort of exporters of, of telehealth? Yeah, so this is one of the things that we were very curious. So we pulled the mailing addresses of the medical doctors to see where they were. And New York State was by far the uh, the most the largest area for them, but Texas wasn't too far behind. And there were a number of other kind of Midwestern states, um, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, even Massachusetts had quite a few MDs who had registered. And again, I think this does get at that snowboarding dynamic. That snowboarding dynamic. I, I think our working theory before we went in was that we actually expected there to be far more Georgia providers or Alabama or Mississippi providers thinking that, oh, there's Florida residents who are you know, crossing a state line previously to see a provider. Now this would allow that provider to stay in touch with 
the Florida patient while they're in Florida. And we saw some of that, but it's not nearly as large as some of these other big states um, that are represented. And this is this needs further research. I mean, what are there additional companies that are located in those two states and they're helping their providers register? Um, or is it just that there's just a lot more providers in those states who are interested? Or is it this whole theory that I have about um, their patients are snowboarding in Florida? Now, you reassured our listeners that you haven't found substantial uh, uptick in in um, complaints or uh, problems with telehealth. What's a meaningful um, uh, comparison? Are you comparing uh, the incidence of complaints uh, amongst in-state telehealth versus out-of-state? Or are we looking at, uh, you know, are you uh, even in analyzing telehealth itself? In other words, how many complaints in the medical world for in-person versus telehealth? I mean, wh- where where would we see a signal that says, look, maybe this telehealth thing is getting a little too uh, wild west and uh, we don't have enough uh, proper guardrails to ensure patient quality? Yeah, so we we took two different approaches just because of the quality, uh, the data quality that was available to us. So in Florida, we looked at and they tracked in-state telehealth visits versus across state line telehealth visits, which felt relatively apples to apples to us. Now, granted, there's limitations to this. Uh, the across state line telehealth visits are much fewer than uh, in-state ones, just as a, a matter of where we sit right now. But with that being said, we didn't see a measurable difference between those in-state telehealth visits versus the across-state line ones. In Idaho, what we had to do, because they don't have uh, as much as robust the data, is we simply looked at the complaints that were uh, telehealth-related complaints that were filed pre-COVID to post-COVID to see was there. So pre-COVID would have been just in-states uh, providers because that was all that was allowed for telehealth, and then during COVID. Now they allow for this uh, across state line. We didn't see a uh, measurable difference. In fact, we found there were more complaints for in-state doctors than there were across state line doctors. I think we're cautious and don't want to draw too many conclusions there. Um, we're not trying to say that in-state doctors are lower quality, but I think we're just saying that there's a lo- uh, many more visits that are happening in-state, whether it's over telehealth or not. And so therefore they are hovering more numbers of complaints, but as a percentage or anything, there's not really a big difference between those two kinds, the delivery of care, whether it's across state line or in-state. So I want to pull back from the the paper, because as you know, it's just two states, Idaho and Florida, but every state has its own regime. Uh, In general, if you have done any analysis of other states, um, how does Florida compare with the other 49? Are other states um, approaching telehealth similarly? Uh, and anticipating my next question is, you know, um, uh, is there a pattern to who seems to embrace, which states seem to embrace this technology and which seem to be reluctant to go there? So the short answer is one of the reasons we uh, studied Florida is because they're a little bit farther ahead in our view. Um, Arizona also has uh, passed legislation during COVID to allow for more across state line telehealth for more providers. But by and large, we're, that's the extent of it. Uh, during COVID, most states allowed it during by emergency order by the governors, but most states don't have not continued to allow it with a few exceptions. Um, state of New Mexico, Utah, Minnesota have a little bit looser um, requirements for medical doctors uh, to be able to see across state line providers. But Arizona and Florida are by far 
ahead of everybody else in terms of having a set of laws that are very clear for how any kind of provider can be able to see a patient or for a patient in reverse to select them as to see them for care. But for the most part, while this ra- this debate is raging, it is not a settled issue and it is not a majority of the states that allow this. And as in an increasingly mobile society where people are moving around a lot, do you think this is something that needs to be addressed in the next couple of years? So uh, now you're probably anticipating my next question. We are one of those 50 states. I, I count you. I don't think you're in our state right now, Josh, but you you call us home, I hope, still. Um, uh, so uh, perhaps you look first for what Massachusetts has done. We, as you mentioned, used an executive order. Our former uh, governor, Charlie Baker, uh, allowed this. You and I covered that in the past. Where are we now and uh, where do we hope to be? If we think we've enumerated benefits of, of allowing out of state, uh, presumably not allowing it is 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 cause for some harm to some people in our in our great commonwealth. So where are we? And, uh, um, you know, what do you think? Yeah, unfortunately, it's no longer allowed in Massachusetts after uh, Charlie Baker rescinded some of the emergency orders. Uh, it was discontinued. And so no longer or uh, is this allowed or people are quite frankly, breaking the law if they're continuing to see providers across state lines, unfortunately. So I'm optimistic and hopeful that the uh, general court at some point will take this back up. They did do quite a bit in passing laws to liberalize some of our telehealth laws during COVID. This is one area that they did not touch. And I think it was a huge missed opportunity. And I hope that they do, whether it's even in just in New England, given our geographic compactness, it makes a lot of sense to be able to have people from New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island, Connecticut, even New York, be able to have a um, be a little bit more flexible uh, going forward. But this is not something that's currently allowed in the Commonwealth. Now, I know you're not an attorney, but you did mention that it, it would be illegal if we continued our relationship, our interstate telehealth relationship with our healthcare provider. Were I to move to or summer or winter in Florida, I could maintain my relationship with my Massachusetts doctor while there. Uh, again, I don't want to. We don't have to get into all the legal loopholes, and you, I don't want to commit you to anything. But once one, in, uh, you know, how how do the laws apply or attach? Uh, is it where I'm sitting, or where my health plan is, or where my doctor is? You know, how does this all work? Yeah, so it, it falls <clears throat> in most states. It falls on what the laws are for practice for the provider. So telehealth definitions are usually put into the code for those providers. And so whatever the rules are or the laws there would apply for them, uh, for them to be able to stay in good standing as a result. Now, with that being said, there's also in some states it's put in the insurance code. And so sometimes those requirements would apply to the insurance companies on what they're allowed to pay for or not pay for. I think what's happening in some cases is people just aren't checking. Uh, And so as a result, they're continuing to do what they did during COVID. you know, it's just it's just an issue going forward. For me, it's an innovation issue. If you want to allow for flexibility and for companies to legally pursue these sorts of innovation and care models or continuation of care, you want legal certainty. And you do want to make it clear that this is something that we think is valuable and for them to explore. And anytime that there's either gray or black and white where a new entrant won't enter the market because they feel like, well, it's not probably not legal. We probably get away with it for a little while, but ultimately they have legal risk. They're not going to move down that pathway. And so that's where I think what we're really talking about. At the end of the day, Joe, 
It's about patient care, though. If patients need to be able to stay in touch with their provider when they are crossing a state line, then it matters. Um, I don't think it should be whether the insurance company is allowed to pay for it or not. We should simply say if the provider and the patient believe that this medically necessary covered service is something that would be helpful in their care, then we should explore it. And again, compared to the status quo, you go to another state, you have to start over with a completely new provider who you don't know and does not know you or your medical history. I think the vast majority of people in the medical community would say, yes, it makes more sense for somebody who's known you for two decades and your health issues to be able to stay in touch once or twice when they're away for the year, um, you know, living in a warmer climate, perhaps, to be able to stay in touch to say, yes, actually, no, you need follow-up care. Given your history, you need to go, or for them to say, no, I think you're fine. Why don't you come see me once you get back to your home state? So listeners who do rely on a provider out of state and want to continue that relationship ought to uh, pick up the phone and, and contact their uh, legislator and say, please, uh, for everyone's benefit, not just their own, but other people needing the same service to benefit from this. It seems like a, a win-win win for everyone. Uh, you and I have talked about the benefits of telehealth. You know, we've, we've gone over them quite extensively here. But one of them, you mentioned the convenience. Of course, you don't want to have to drive into Boston Park and uh, getting park, a parking ticket and all, all the other attending costs with, with this. It's also convenient for the doctor. He needs a smaller office, perhaps less staff, and he doesn't have to come in uh, to uh, to see you either. Um, is the, the cost of telehealth, which let's say the overhead costs seem to be far lower, is that being reflected in the way one is billed? And I'll, a, a follow-up question is, might I, as a consumer of healthcare, if there were no restrictions on interstate uh, telehealth, could I find a cheaper provider in Wyoming than in New York City? You know, again, setting aside quality issues, could I essentially shop around for the cheapest service in the country using telehealth? And 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 again, everyone wins. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, in theory, you can. This is where the details matter, though, in which state, because some states have called something called a payment, passed a payment parity law, which requires telehealth visits to be paid at the exact same rate as an in-person visit, which kind of undercuts your entire possibility that you've just laid out there. Um, so that it depends on the state that you live in. Um, the, the challenge with that, though, is that for people with deductibles, they're paying the whole thing. And so as we've seen survey data where you see 50, 60, 70 percent of Americans saying they're deleting, delaying, excuse me, delaying medical care because over cost concerns, I, I think there's real questions on why you would mandate that they have to be the exact same rate going forward. Um, when it comes to the price variation, that's certainly possible um, that you could find a cheaper option. But I would just say price is one of many factors that people are considering, even over telehealth. That, you know, there's a number of different companies that have different offerings. Some people value seeing the same provider each time. So you might not be want to just see, you know, the cheapest one. You might want to say, no, I want to see Joe Smith every time I use telehealth. And so as a result, that might be reflected in the price. Some people value, no, I just wanna see the next provider. Doesn't matter who it is, just I'm dealing with this ailment and I wanna see whoever can be on my screen within five or 10 minutes, that's what I value. And so you are seeing some market differentiation in the telehealth world about what patients might want to see. I mentioned the team-based care um, going forward. And so price is one of four or five or six different considerations that people are using to determine what sorts of providers they're going to use long term. Wow, it sounds like you're uh, giving agency to to patients. That's a that's a remarkable uh, bit of confidence. Uh, 
uh, I share your enthusiasm where the individual patient determines what is valuable to them. Uh, and this is just one more uh, tool uh, in the toolkit. So I'm going to, we're getting close to the end of our time together. And I'm going to say if, and when you do visit uh, Massachusetts again, and they call you into the governor's office or into the legislator's office and you say, you know, Josh, we want to have an efficient uh, a system that serves our uh, citizens. We like telehealth. We think we are a, uh, we have lots and lots of uh, doctors. Um, what would you do? What kind of legislation do we need now post COVID to ensure that this technology sticks and we can all benefit from it? Yeah, I mean, I think as you're going through the political process, there's a few guardrails that have, have become common in the legislation that's been filed, which, you know, are common sense to me. You know, I think the state should simply set up a very efficient process, whether it's just filing paperwork with the relevant board, if you're a medical doctor, or if you're a nurse or a mental health provider, that simply shows that you are licensed or registered or whatever is required for you in your home state, that you are in good practice, that you have not had malpractice uh, suit filed against you in the last five years, or that it's not outstanding. There's not an outstanding disciplinary case that's open uh, in your home state, and that you're going to. There's going to be some basic requirements for you to report back to the state when any of those factors are not met. If you have a disciplinary case opened, uh, that you need to alert the the um, that the Massachusetts board within 10 days or 15 days or whatever. Uh, time frame makes the most sense. I think those sorts of common sense guardrails um, are very reasonable. And I think most medical providers are willing to abide by them. For them, it's really just to say, look, when we find ourselves in a situation where a patient is needing medically necessary care and we know them, we want to make sure there's a quick way for us to be able to move forward to providing that care. And so anything that can shrink the time period in which an individual provider needs to provide that care is really important. You know, two weeks, a month, three months is too long. Um, being able to put in that information and have it be verified over time, saying that if you put in the information, we're going to assume it is correct and you can go ahead and provide the care, but we're going to verify that information and give us a week to do so or something like that. But you can start to provide the care because we're trusting that you're in good standing. The medical boards talk to each other across state lines. So it's not that unreasonable for them to just double check to say, is this person in fact licensed in your state? Are they in good standing? Great, we can move forward. Um, I think that's that's what I would advise. And I'm hoping that any resistance that's there now will, will change over time. Because even in Massachusetts with many, many providers compared to other states, there's still shortages um, in certain specialty areas and in primary care. And I think we're just very short-sighted if we don't entertain this as part of the solution. And indeed, and I think what I'm hearing you say is it should be comprehensive, but it should be easy uh, and quick uh, because any delay, any complexity, anything that discourages that that registration, in a sense, hurts patients, right? Uh, for for no reasonable purpose. Um, so that's that's a great way. Uh, so for the uh, legislators and leaders listening, uh, let's hope they take this to heart and uh, and we move forward with this. Uh, again, I've been very excited about telehealth from uh, the day we're at almost three years to the week from when this uh, pandemic began. Uh, if this is a, a bit of a silver lining, I'm thrilled that uh, we've been able to cover it. So, Josh, thank you again for joining me on Hubwonk. You're always a terrific guest. Thanks, Joe, for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support the podcast and Pioneer Institute. It'd be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. 
If you'd like to help make it easier for others to find Hubonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.